sleet pattered wetly on the dung-coated cobbles outside Lincoln's Inn, and the biting wind had long since blown out the lamp that swung above the gate. The night was so dark that it was difficult even to make out the craggy outlines of the chimneys and turrets that topped the ancient walls, and the sturdy gate was no more than a looming mass of black. Thomas Chaloner eased farther inside the doorway of the Rolls Chapel, invisible in his black cloak and the blacker shadows. It was bitterly cold, and his hands and feet were numb from standing still so long, but he was used to that kind of discomfort. Observing the movements of others, while remaining unseen, was how he made his living, because Chaloner was a government spy, or rather, he had been a government spy. He had been dismissed in March, and his situation was fast becoming desperate. He owed rent to his landlord. There was no food in the larder, and even his best clothes were beginning to look hopelessly tatty. And that was why he was lurking outside Lincoln's Inn on an icy December morning, waiting for dawn and the interview that might be his salvation. The man he wanted to see was named John Thurlow. Thurlow had been Oliver Cromwell's Secretary of State and Spymaster General during the Commonwealth. And when that regime had collapsed following Cromwell's death, Thurlow had fallen with it, and had lost his position of power. Although fortunately for Chaloner, he had retained a modicum of influence over his successors. The restored King Charles II immediately appointed good royalists to form his new government but they had scant idea how to run a country, and Thurlow's advice and guidance had proved invaluable, although few of the newcomers were prepared to admit it. A group of leather workers slouched past, heading for the factory on Fleet Street, although none noticed the silent, motionless figure in the doorway. The factory was owned by a political fanatic called Praise God Barbon whose name had been adopted for one of Cromwell's more rabid parliaments, and so its goods were unpopular in royalist London. No one wanted to be accused of supporting adherents of the old regime. Consequently, Barbon's men were shabbily dressed and resentful about their change of fortune. Chaloner sympathised with their plight, and wondered how many others were consigned to poverty because of circumstances beyond their control. He watched them pass, then turned his attention back to Lincoln's Inn, wishing dawn would come so he could abandon his chilly vigil and go to meet Thurlow in his warm chambers. Chaloner was not usually given to hovering outside the homes of former employers, but he was uneasy about the interview aware that its outcome would affect the rest of his life. While he waited, he recalled how, when the Republic had first started to shake itself to pieces, he had been in Holland, assigned to a diplomat named Sir George Downing. Downing had hedged his bets, offering his services to the flustered ministers of the old regime, as well as to the exiled king, until he was sure which side would emerge victorious. He had kept Chaloner on his staff for two years after the Restoration, because Chaloner's reports on the Dutch Navy were useful to any British government, and Downing was more than happy to take credit for them. But in March, Downing had left The Hague and returned to England, 
where he and Chaloner had quarrelled violently. In a fury, he had dismissed the spy in a way that had made it difficult for him to find other work. Now, after months of futile applications, Chaloner saw his only hope was to ask Thurlow to intervene and see whether he knew any government officials who might require an experienced pair of ears and eyes. The significance of the meeting meant he had been unable to sleep, and he knew the time would pass more quickly if he was doing something, even if it were only standing uselessly outside Lincoln's Inn. Also, he did not want his restlessness to communicate itself to his woman, who was sure to question him about it if it did.